Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of your favorite paranormal podcast called Paranormal Exposed. This is the evidence-based podcast that looks into various paranormal occurrences that happen here across the United States. I am your host, Michelle, and while I am a skeptic by nature, I really do want to be a believer. I am both intrigued by the paranormal and really open to the possibilities of what might be out there. So join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present to you what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I will present to you both the historical facts as well as the paranormal reports and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode takes us back to Amityville, New York and the island of Long Island. And this is our second episode of the Amityville Horror House. If you haven't listened to part one, which is the story of the DeFeo family, I would highly recommend it before continuing with this story. But part two I'm going to get into covers the family who came in after the DeFeos, and they are the family named the Lutzes. On July 4th of 1975, George and Kathleen Lutz were married. George Lutz ended up adopting Kathleen's three kids named Daniel, age 9, Christopher, age 7, and Melissa, age 5. The wife, Kathleen, went by Kathy, so you will hear me referring her at, to her. The wife, whose name was Kathleen, she went by Kathy, so throughout the rest of the episode, you will hear me refer to her as Kathy. Now, the family who had merged these two families, they were searching for a home to live in together to combine themselves. The newly married couple wanted to combine the two families into one home, so they started a search to find the perfect place to live. After the DeFeo murders, the house at 112 Ocean Avenue was put on the market at a low price because of the murders. The Lutz family decided to look past the murders and get a chance to buy their dream home. They bought the home for $80,000, which in today's dollar is $400,000, which on Long Island in New York on the river is kind of a steal for that time. They also paid an additional $400, which would be about $2,000 today, and that got them a lot of the DeFeo furniture that was still in the home. I'm not sure why you would want furniture that families were murdered in, but I'm hoping they just didn't keep the beds, but that's just my thoughts. After the DeFeo murders, 13 months later, on December 18th of 1975, the Lutz family moved into the home. Other than people stating that they thought the home possessed Butch to commit the murders and maybe caused personality changes in the rest of the DeFeo family, at this point there had been no reports of haunting from the previous three families, including the DeFeo family. Though the Lutz family was aware of the murders that had taken place in their home, so before they moved in, on the recommendation of a friend, they had a Catholic priest named Father Ralph Pegararo come out to bless the home. When he entered the home, he said he felt an overwhelming, weird feeling. So he continued to go up the stairs, and when he got to the top of the stairs, he heard a loud voice telling him to get out. He also then felt a hand slap him when he entered one of the rooms upstairs. 
He didn't tell the family about the paranormal events that had happened, but did ask them what they planned on doing with one of the rooms upstairs. And this was the room he had been slapped in. As he was worried that they would use it as a bedroom, and he didn't feel comfortable with it. The family told him they were going to use it as a sewing room, so he wasn't worried. He said they would be fine. After the family moved in, the first few days were a little uneventful. The only things they noticed were their dog, Harry, was acting a little bit strange, but again, new territory for the dog, lots of new smells. They also had a kind of eerie feeling, which, again, they realized that a bunch of murders took place in their new home, so it takes them getting used to. There was also cold spots that the family noted throughout the home, but they really didn't think too much of it. While they should have definitely enjoyed those first few days, because after that, things escalated for the family very, very quickly. After those days, the family stated that they felt that they were under a never-ending demonic assault in this home. Quickly, the family started experiencing behavioral changes. These were things like the parents would get easily irritated and yell at each other and the children. Mood swings would happen very suddenly, and the children themselves were actually fighting more than they normally would. The father, George, began isolating himself from the family early on. He would kind of walk around talking to himself, and he also started hearing voices. He became obsessed with the fireplace as he stated he just felt like he could never get warm when he was in the house. This led him to focus so much that he would chop firewood for hours to make sure he had enough firewood to try and keep warm in the house. In addition to him having these issues with staying cold in the house, there's also reports that the temperatures in the house would fluctuate between hot and freezing cold in an instant. Sometimes the changes were as much as 40 degrees at a time. The family would also hear footsteps throughout the home. They'd hear screaming, banging, and loud voices. Some of these would wake the family up in the middle of the night. George Lutz, he actually began waking up every night at 3.15 a.m., which is when Butch DeFeo was said to have actually carried out the murders in that home. Oddly enough, linking back to the DeFeos, the children of the Lutz family all began sleeping on their stomach, which, if you remember from episode one, is how the DeFeos were found sleeping. There was a lion statue that the family had purchased and had left it in the living room. George ended up tripping over the lion statue, and he was kind of annoyed, but his leg hurt afterwards, and when he looked down, he found that he had bite marks that were in the shape of what the lion statue would have given him. He was kind of freaked out, and, you know, if this was me, I might throw it outside, but he just decided to move the statue upstairs, but later on, he found it downstairs again. Their son, Daniel, stated that he went into one of the rooms and found about 500 flies flying around. He started killing them off, and he killed about a hundred of them when he realized he was kind of out of his league. He went to get his parents, and when they got to the room, there was no flies at all, not even dead ones. The youngest daughter, Melissa, who was only five, claimed to talk to a large pig. The pig's name was Jody, and this Jody had wolf-like teeth and laser-beam red eyes. 
Melissa said that Jody was an angel who said that she could change shape. Though I'm sorry, if you're an angel appearing to a little girl, I might pick a different image than a creepy pig with red eyes and big teeth that looks like it's going to eat me. That's just my theory. George and Kathy were also sitting in the living room one day when they saw two glowing red eyes in the window. Upon investigation, they found cloven hoof prints. When they went outside to investigate, they found cloven footprints in the snow, like those that would have made like those that would have been made by a giant pig. So Jody's now keeping an eye on all members of the family, and I wouldn't think this would be an angel. Maybe it's a demon posing as an angel to try and get in with the family. Throughout the house, many members of the family would report the feeling of being touched. Kathy especially would feel hands touching her and scratching her. One one account from the Lutz family stated that when friends came over, they asked the Lutz family why their kids were up so late and that they should have them in bed. The Lutz family told them that this is just what happens in the house. The kids are already sleeping in bed. It's not them. Well, the friends, of course, didn't believe them, and when they went upstairs, they were shocked to find that all the kids were sleeping in their beds. Another report that happened only to George is he would be in the house and could hear the sound of a marching band coming from the living room. But when he went to investigate, the band noise would stop, but he would find that all the furniture in the living room had been pushed to one side. Kathy was pretty freaked out by all this, and she turned to religion to try and help them. At one point, she put a cross on the wall in the living room, but when she did, it turned completely upside down on its own and started to emit a really bad odor. In addition to the bad odors coming from the cross, there would be unpleasant smells that would come from various areas in the home. The ceramic from the toilets would turn black. Not the water itself, but actually like the inside of the toilet bowl. The banister on the stairway, it was actually wrenched from the staircase, and so was the front door. It was almost completely wrenched off its hinges, which is an extremely heavy wooden door and would have been really difficult to do. In addition to these reports, green slime and black sticky substances would ooze and drip from the ceilings, keyholes and walls. One of the creepiest accounts is one night George and Kathy were in bed and when George looked over he found his wife was actually levitating off of the bed but it didn't look like his wife it appeared to be an old hag woman. When she finally stopped levitating Kathy looked in the mirror and she saw the same thing an old hag woman. It terrified them both as it lasted well over an hour and she was actually worried she'd never look the way she did again. Kathy would also sometimes smell a woman's perfume and actually feel like somebody was embracing her from behind. In addition to the front door and the banister being wrenched off, doors and windows would open and close on their own. Cabinet doors would also open on their own. Door locks would bend. George also told one investigator that a window actually slammed down on one of his son's hand, requiring him to actually take the boy to the hospital. 
So now not only was it a psychological assault, but it was also now being a physical assault. The two boys, Daniel and Christopher, would actually both levitate off of their beds as well. And the family ended up then discovering a secret room that was not in the plans for the house. The room was painted red, and for those of you familiar with the story already, this is the famous red room. This red room became really famous after the movie The Amityville Horror House was released and has been made over and over again, showing the red room as really the demonic heart of the house. The family dog would cower and refuse to go near this red room, and the family just felt an overwhelming evil presence coming from the room. With all of these assaults happening all the time, the family was kind of at their wit's end. And the final night in the home was the last straw. George was sleeping when he felt Kathy again begin levitating off the bed and sliding away from him. At the same time, he felt something crawl into the bed with him, but he couldn't move or look at what it was as he was frozen in place. He said he could hear the kids being thrown and dragged on the floor screaming, but he couldn't get up to help them. They also heard birds outside the window all night hitting against the windows, and the lights were flickering on and off, and their dog was turning in circles throwing up all night. Finally, when they were released and able to get back on their feet, on January 14th of 1976, only 28 days after moving into the home, the family fled the home with nothing other than a couple changes of clothes. They left all their furniture, they left all their belongings, and went to stay with family that was local. Now, per the Lutz family, they loved the home. It was their dream home, but the continuous paranormal assaults were just too much. They wanted to eventually be able to return to the house, so they got in contact with people who could cleanse the home. On February 24th of 1976, the famous duo, Ed, and Lorraine Warren investigated the home. If you are not familiar with Ed and Lorraine Warren, Ed is a self-proclaimed demonologist and Lorraine is a self-proclaimed clairvoyant. They are very famous for investigating many paranormal cases. Along with Ed and Lorraine, a TV crew came and many other gifted persons. Upon entering the home, Lorraine stated that she felt an overwhelming sense of sadness and depression throughout the home. In addition to the murdered victim, she also felt an evil presence that, quote, came from the bowels of the earth, end quote. She stated she hoped this was the closest to hell that she ever got. During their investigation, a seance was held, and during this seance, Lorraine reported that she actually encountered Butch's spirit. She stated the encounter was so terrible and he was so sinister that she felt there was nothing she could do to help or rid the home of his spirit. This one actually really surprised me because remember Butch, he was still alive at this point. He didn't die until 2021. So I didn't realize that spirits could be attached to a home if you were still living. I didn't really look into this claim, but I found that interesting. Now, Ed. He claimed that when he entered the basement, he was nearly driven to the ground by a really powerful presence. There was also the Warren's friend Mary who accompanied them, 
and she is what is known as a time walker. This means that she can sense and sometimes see events that have already happened. She claimed that she was saying that our father, and when she looked outside, she actually saw and heard a group of figures saying the Our Father backwards. And during the seance, Mary became so ill that she had to actually leave the home. Throughout the seance and throughout their investigation, the people who are gifted experienced cold spots, and one of the cameramen on the TV crew actually became short of breath and experienced heart palpitations while standing on the staircase. Other than the cameraman, the TV reporter and the crew didn't have any experiences with the paranormal during the experience. There was one photo that they captured that had the image of a little boy with glowing eyes, even though there were actually no children that were in the home at the time of the investigation. The Warrens did suggest a cleansing at the end of their investigation, but the Lutz family actually refused. Instead, they allowed the home to be reclaimed by the bank in August of 1976. The family possessions were said to be auctioned off, though I did see other reports stating that they held a yard sale the next day, and also one report stated they had a yard sale a few weeks later. I couldn't confirm the auction or the yard sale. I'm not sure what exactly happened, but if it's stated that the home was reclaimed by the bank, anything left inside the home would have probably been auctioned off. Eventually, the family moved to San Diego, California, and later on to Arizona. In September of 1977, a man named Jay Anson published a book called The Amityville Horror, A True Story. The book itself became pretty much an instant bestseller. Though Anson was actually reportedly never allowed into the home at Amityville, and he actually never interviewed the family in person. He based his books off of 45 hours of recordings of interviews the family had given and agreed to a 50-50 profit split from book profits with the Lutzes. Now, not only was the Amityville house associated with hauntings, but actually anything associated with the house at all, including the book and the movie. There was a photographer who was working for Jay Anson, and he was taking pictures of the Amityville home from the outside for the book. After he left, he went to take pictures of Anson himself for the book cover. But when he went to his car, even though it was switched off, it caught fire and started billowing smoke. In another instance, Jay Anson had given a copy of his manuscript to a woman to read over and see what she thought. That night, a fire actually suffocated her and her two children, and the only thing undamaged in the fire was the manuscript. He also gave his manuscript to another man to read over, and the man had put it in the trunk of his car. He was driving through a puddle, but it wasn't actually a puddle. It turned out to be a 12-foot deep hole. The car had to be fished out, and the only dry item in the car, yeah, you guessed it, the manuscript. He needed to stop giving out manuscripts because his editor picked up the manuscript too, and his car ended up catching on fire as well, and in addition to this, all the bolts in his engine were loosened. I think at this point he probably didn't give out his manuscript anymore. 
in addition to this, in 1979, the Amityville horror movie came out. And there have been many remakes on this, but I'm covering what was associated with the original movie made in 1979. During the filming of the original movie, the actor James Brolin, who played the main guy, George Lutz, said he thought that the film was jinxed. After filming, he got stuck in his apartment elevator many times and even twisted his ankle on set. These are the only two reported events from James Brolin. I'm not sure that this classifies as the film being jinxed. And also something to think about is the movie was actually not filmed at the Amityville home, but at a house in New Jersey. And this was because the Amityville town refused to let them film in their town as they were just kind of done with the publicity at this point. The day the movie was released, William Weber actually came out stating that he had cooked up the hoax of the Amityville Horror House with the Lutzes. Does that name sound familiar? Because it should. If you listen to part one, you would know that he was Butch DeFeo's lawyer and then eventually ended up working with the Lutzes. He said he wanted a chance to help Butch and they all wanted to make a little bit of money, so they decided to cook up the scheme and talk about the Amityville Horror House. The claims from the Lutzes had been speculated about for a long time, and for all the people who fervently believed the claims, there were just as many who called it a hoax. And Weber's claim brought the hoaxer claims to the forefront. Weber stated that in January of 1976, his law firm, the Lutzes, and author Paul Hoffman brainstormed ideas to put into the book. He stated that the family and himself had come up with the reports of the hauntings, by actually de- embellishing stories of the DeFeo case. And remember, William Weber had actually been the lawyer in DeFeo's defense. So he had all of the case documents, he had all the files on the murders, everything. So he sat down with the Lutzes and they kind of concocted the story per William Weber. Now, some of the things of what were reportedly the stories he concocted is I will go through them one by one. One is there was a neighbor's cat that used to come around the house quite often in the time of both the DeFeos and the Lutzes. The cat would come peeking in the windows and he liked to sit on the windowsills outside of their home. The cat was really overweight and Butch actually had nicknamed the cat Pig. Hence, this is where Jody the Demon Pig came from. Now you might wonder about the black stained toilets. This actually came from the crime scene photos as well, and this is where they saw pictures of the toilets where they were blackened from fingerprint powder. The fingerprint powder is actually responsible per Weber for the blood and the oozing coming from the walls, the ceilings. The fingerprint powder could appear greenish as well as black depending on where it was, and this also turned into the sticky black substances coming from the walls, the keyholes, and everything else. The reports of the swarms of flies came from the flies at the crime scene as well, as remember the bodies were in the home for over 48 hours, and not to be graphic, but you can imagine the smells, the flies, everything. So this is also where the reports of the Lutz's odors came from. So those are just a few um, descriptions that Mr. Weber gave. There are many more, but those are just a few of the stories that he stated. So in March of 1976, William Weber drew up a contract for the book, but the Lutzes ended up not signing as after the splits, they would only get a 12% profit because there was three people in his law firm he would have to split with, they would have to split with the author, and they would have to split with the publisher. 
So instead, they ended up signing a book deal with Jay Anson so they could get the 50-50 profit split. Smart business decision. The author Paul Hoffman, who was originally set to publish their book, did publish two articles. One was in the New York Sunday News on July 18th of 1976, and one was in the April 1977 edition of Good Housekeeping. Both of these articles were published before Anson's book, so it does give the story some backbone, but again, remember, a lot of their things had been claimed already on TV and in multiple interviews, so he could have had that information prior. In May of 1977, the Lutzes ended up suing William Weber, his law firm, um, Paul Hoffman, Good Housekeeping Magazine, and the New York Sunday News for invasion of privacy, mental distress, etc., etc. And what did they want for their mental distress? Well, of course, $4.5 million. So Weber filed a countersuit for $2 million for breach of contract as well as fraud. The judge presiding over the case immediately dismissed the Lutz's suit and let Weber's countersuit go on. But remember, Weber had already admitted to concocting this story with the Lutzes. So the judge said that he was going to send the suit over to the Bar Association for review of Weber's law license. The next day, the countersuit was magically settled and dismissed, though it has not been disclosed what the settlement was. Seems to look pretty bad for the Lutz's story, right? Well, let's look at Weber's motives. He was trying to cut in Mr. DeFeo on profits and use the book and story to help with his possession defense and kind of work on getting DeFeo out or on parole. He was also just cut out of a lucrative book deal, and maybe he claimed this as a way of revenge to get it back in the deal. Who knows? Weber's account about trying to help Butch through the book was substantiated by Butch's estranged wife. Yes, Butch was married, and not just once. So let's try and reserve some judgment here. I mean, who doesn't want to marry someone who apparently murdered his entire family? Now that you know the reports of what happened, I'm going to elaborate and prove debunk a little bit as I go on. First off, I want to address the book that was published by Jay Anson. Though the book presents as fact, much of the book's events were made up or highly exaggerated. Now, at first, the Lutzes stated that the book was pretty much true to account of what had happened to them, but eventually the Lutz family admitted under oath that many of the events in the book never happened or were wildly exaggerated. They stated that Mr. Anson had took many literary licenses, which again is why he's an author and not a journalist. To People Magazine in 1978, Anson stated, quote, I am a professional writer. I don't believe and I don't disbelieve. I leave that to the reader. To the New York Times that same year, he stated, quote, I believe these people believe that they went through all these things they saw and heard, end quote. The events stated to have occurred with people associated with the book. That includes the manuscript not being damaged in water, cars catching fire, things like that. There are no newspaper articles on this. There are no pictures. The only thing is hearsay. I'd think that some of these events, including a car falling into a 12-foot deep hole, would make it into the paper. Concerned citizens would be pretty upset. This seems like a really big publicity stunt. Jay Anson did work on the Exorcist films. And if you remember the terrible events that plagued the filming, catapulted its success even higher than the movie itself had originally done. 
and maybe he wanted to see if this would work for the book too, and it kind of did to an extent. Also, it seems that he did pull some things from the Exorcist script to use in his Amityville book. So again, the Lutzes claim the book did a great job covering everything that happened to them and was really realistic, but again, eventually stated that it was pretty much made up or exaggerated, which leaves us wondering what was true and what wasn't. I'm going to now go through some of the claims that can be addressed. First off, there was the report of the cloven hoof prints in the snow. Per the family, this happened on January 1st of 1975. Though, if you look at the historical almanac reports, there had been no snow on that day or the previous few days. There had only been a few days of rain with temperatures in the high 40s. So, if they had said maybe hoof prints in the mud, it would have worked, but not in the snow. The family also reported doors being ripped off hinges, banisters being wrenched down, windows shattered, things like that. But the next tenants all moved in and reported the original woodwork and hardware looked untouched, including the front door, with paint even matching up perfectly to door frames and things like that. You may wonder what about the famous red room. Well, this room is not actually a room per se. So there's a small area under the stairs off to the side, and it has cinder block walls that are painted red, but not a scary blood red, more like a dark brick, brick red. Per a friend of one of the DeFeo's daughters, they actually used it to store toys and general storage when the DeFeo family owned it. I saw a video of it. It's not very creepy looking at all. It's kind of like you look, there's a little cubby under the stairs, an extra little doorway, and another little cubby. So just, you know, a little dark space. Then there's the story where George told an investigator that his son's hand was smashed in a window and he would have to have it taken care of at the hospital. Well, after the investigator took down his story, he stated that he was going to subpoena the records from the hospital to get the proof. Immediately, George changed his story and said, well, it did happen, but they didn't actually have to go to the hospital. He was able to just bandage it at home. And what about the priest, Ralph Pecoraro? Well, when he was interviewed in an assigned court affidavit, he stated he actually never went to the house or experienced anything paranormal in regards to the home. He stated his only contact with the family was that he had spoken to George over the phone, but he had actually never been to the house. And neighbors, they didn't report any unusual activity. You would think with 28 days of horrifying continuous events, screaming, all sorts of noises, that neighbors might hear something, witness something. They don't report anything. And you might ask, what about the photo of the little boy? that was captured by the TV crew during the Warren investigation. Well, the photo was taken in 1976. It was not released to the public until three years later when George Lutz released the photo in 1979, which conveniently was right when the movie was released for the Amityville Horror House. Great for publicity. There are many theories about who this boy could be, it is said that it could be the youngest of the murdered DeFeo children. There was also an investigator there named Paul Bartz, who it is said to have looked like him. And lastly, it's reported that it looks like one of the son of the film crew. Well, I looked at the photo extensively. I kind of really cropped into it, cleaned some stuff up with the contrast. And actually, to me, 
It doesn't look like any of these things. It looks like an adult, possibly a female, who is actually wearing glasses. You can see the frame of the glasses, so the eyes look glowing in the picture because of the reflection on the glasses. And it looks like one of those things where somebody calls your name, you kind of peek your head around the doorway like, what? I have the original picture and the picture of Paul Bartz, who has said it could be, and the picture of the DeFeo Boyd. I'm going to post all of those on social media, and you can kind of decide what you think about the photo. And speaking of the Warren investigation, the Lutz claimed that they wanted to stay in the home. So why would you want to first off stay in a home where your family had been terrorized for an entire month? And not just small things. I mean, they were pretty creepy things. But let's say they legitimately do. They call in a TV crew and the most well-known paranormal investigators in the world. Then, when these investigators finish and offer to take care and cleanse your home, you just go, eh, never mind, change my mind. Seems to me they got some great PR from the Warren fans and further bolstered their stories with newspaper reports and reporting on TV. But I'm going to put the skeptic hat aside for a second and throw a kink in that skeptic's theory. So Kathleen and George Lutz were both put under a lie detector test, and they actually both passed with flying colors showing that they were telling the truth, or at least believed what they were saying. You might be able to say that they faked it, but looking at the history is lie detectors are shown to be at least 80% accurate. So if one of them or both of them was lying, you would think that only one of them would pass. Also very specific questions were asked during the process, such as about Kathy turning into a hag and things like that. So it wasn't just like, do you think your house is haunted? The people who ran the lie detector test were also some of the top of their fields. So it wasn't like they just kind of put some hacks into it and said, well, good luck. And the last reports I want to give are those from the grown Lutz children. Now, the youngest daughter and only daughter of the Lutzes actually has been the only one in the family never to speak about the incident. But remember, she was only five years old at the time, so it's not likely that she would remember a whole lot, if anything at all. The middle son, Christopher, he was seven at the time and confirmed the events that happened. He stated that his stepdad, George, had greatly exaggerated the event, but he really hasn't gone into detail as he wants to complete a book, of course, and a movie in the near future, so he's not giving any details on what happened in the home. But he does claim that George was a little hard on them with his military background. But he wasn't abusive, just, you know, it wasn't always the easiest. Now moving on to the oldest son, Daniel. In 2012, he told his side of the story in a documentary called My Amityville Horror. He said it was actually George who had summoned the bad spirits as he dabbled in both Satanism and the occult. And this he based on George's book collection. Also, Daniel remembered George levitating an object at one point while they were in the garage of the home, but he doesn't say what he levitated. He did report, quote, I was possessed by a spirit that I could not get rid of on my own, end quote. He also recalled the hundreds of flies and the priest coming into the house and more. He did decline a lie detector test to prove his theory, but unlike his brother Christopher, Daniel does state that his father was abusive and that he did everything he could to destroy George's world in return. Daniel also claimed that George was both verbally and physically abusive towards the whole family. So 
so much so that he ran away from home at a young age, resulting in him never receiving more than a middle school education, and claims that he, quote, lived in the desert, end quote. I'm not sure if he means like he lived in Vegas or something, or in the middle of the desert in a tent. Who knows? So Daniel was the oldest child, but remember he was only nine at the time. And his recounts actually seem to pretty much be based on what is heard in the news and what is heard in the books. And if you remember, the author and the Lutz family stated that the book is fabricated or over-exaggerated. But he was really impressionable at nine, I'm sure. So this story was so sensationalized, he probably heard it over and over again. And it could have formed into his long-term memory. As far as the abuse, one son claims it existed, one says it didn't, so it's hard to say, but again, sometimes a parent figure places their focus on just one child, so I can't say that it didn't happen. Regardless, both of the children claimed all the reports ruined their life and their childhood. I mean, imagine that's all you're associated with. The middle son actually ended up changing his name to his real father's name to kind of get away from the Lutz Association. George and Kathleen made quite a large sum of money off their story and were able to live more than comfortably in San Diego, California, which, of course, is not a cheap place to live. They made profits from their story via book and movie rights, interviews, etc., etc., and eventually ended up making millions. They eventually moved to Arizona and ended up divorcing amicably in the late 1980s. Something to think about is... The Exorcist movie was released in 1973, and it really shocked people. Nothing quite like it had been done before. People fainted from watching it, had to leave the theater, and it was even banned in lots of places. And this story played right on the coattails not too many years after this happened. After the Lutz family moved out, the home stayed empty for 14 months. And this was due to the bank having to reclaim the house, taking time for that. And eventually, a couple named James and Barbara Camardi bought the home for $55,000. They lived here for over 10 years and reported the only hauntings they experienced were the hordes of people coming onto their property at all hours of the night. They would take pieces of their lawn, pieces of the home. They would hold seances, vigils. They would tap on their windows in the middle of the night. It was pretty horrible, so they ended up changing the address from 112 Ocean Avenue to 108 Ocean Avenue as well as adding a fake window to try and deter people from realizing that this was the house. But it didn't fool people, and they just kept coming. The family eventually sued the Lutzes, Anson, and the book publisher Prentice Hall for $1.1 million in assorted damages for fraud and trying to get them to admit that the subtitle of Anson's book, A True Story, wasn't quite what it was cracked up to be. They ended up settling the suit in favor of the Comrade family for an undisclosed six-figure sum in 1982. After living in the home for about 10 years, on September 10th of 1987, the home was sold to Peter and Jean O'Neill. This family actually changed the famous eye windows to square windows, changing the look altogether. They stayed here for about 10 years, and in June of 1997, it was sold to a man named Brian Wilson. He stayed here for another four years and then sold it to Carolyn and David D'Antonio. Unfortunately, David passed away, so they had to sell the home. And since 
March of 2017, another family has owned the home and no further hauntings have been reported after the Lutz family left from any of the five families who've lived here since them and the three families that lived there before them. What surprises me most about the reports of this haunting is that other than George waking up at 3.15 a.m. and the family sleeping on their stomachs, is there's nothing about the DeFeo family haunting the home. This is the tragedy that's said to have caused all of the issues for the Lutzes, as they died in such a tragic and horrific way. You could imagine their spirits wanting to stay on here, but no other families have reported them either. Um, I suppose the DeFeos could have made these things happen, but the forces seem very dark per their reports, and the DeFeo family, they really weren't, you know, it was a nine-year-old kids, 11-year-old kids. Now, did the Lutzes experience haunted occurrences or not? I mean, I can't 100% say for sure. I honestly feel like nothing happened. The lie detector tests do give them a little credibility. If it wasn't for that, it would be 100% definitely not. But there is so much evidence and changing of their stories to make me believe that it didn't happen. At the end of the day, you just have to ask, were the Lutz and DeFeo family affected by the house? And the other question is, did a family take advantage of the aftermath of the DeFeo family? Because now such a tragedy is overshadowed by the Lutz claims. People don't really think about what happened to this poor family. They just think about the haunted claims of the Lutzes say. One thing to think about is before the Lutzes came into the house, the DeFeos lived here for quite a while. These people were murdered tragically. So let's maybe not focus on all the hauntings that are taking place and think about them for a minute. I am going to include some links. Um, the two are from the Amityville Files and the Amityville Horror Murder site, and these show the crime photos, so don't look at those, but you can look at all the reports of what is said to have happened in the home. There's also a YouTube link that will show you the infamous Red Room so you can see it in person. But that is my theories on the Lutz family, and I'm really sad to say that I used to think this was a true story, and now I don't but I would love to hear your thoughts. Maybe you think it's haunted, maybe you don't. Personal experience or proof you may have or just some other facts you'd like to share. I'd also love to hear your feedback on this episode and suggestions you may have for a future episode. So make sure you tune in every Wednesday, wherever you tune in. And don't forget to leave a five-star review if you like the episode as well as follow this podcast. You can also follow the podcast social media for more information on each episode, including pictures, links, and much, much more. You can follow on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, Facebook at Paranormal Exposed, or you can always shoot an email at paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will catch you all next Wednesday.